everyone, and welcome to another Crunch episode of the Mythos Manual. I'm your host, Leslie Wisniewski, producer of the podcast, and joining me this week, as always, is Calder Kadavid, the Game Master. Hey, all you cool human laborers out there. We left you uh, toiling. You're the only ones left. It's so sad that everyone who was a human laborer got abandoned. It's more sad that the other ones that aren't human laborers are dead. Yeah, that's true. I guess I just think it's kind of a bummer that the party left the human laborers to just, I guess, finish digging up the Hall of Hostility and will wander off to Sugarglade, I'm sure to be turned into soul gems over the next 12 hours. Yes. Mm. Uh, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start a little earlier. Uh, these last two episodes have been really wild, a lot of conflict on the battlefield, and some conflict within the party. We're going to dive into all of that here on this Crunch episode. It was Conflict City out here. Conflict Central. Conflict Diamonds. Why diamonds? I don't know. There's no real diamonds. Conflict Emeralds. There you go. Conflict Emeralds. Um. Well, jumping into the the first of our two episodes that we're kind of recapping and digging into, uh, Olatika Part Two. Olatika Part Two. Uh, <laughs> Olatika Part Two. Poema Nights. Except it wasn't nighttime. It was like late afternoon. I think that's established in the episode. Olatika Part de Leroy Afternoons. Olatika Part de Siesta. It's pretty good. Thank you. Because it's about that time in the afternoon when everyone should be napping and not fighting a giant undead demigod. This would be the traditional time for a siesta. It's true. Uh, so, Cal, talk to us a little bit. Obviously, we're still fighting the same monster, but this combat was really different from the first go around. It was. It was different. It went pretty differently. I think in terms of like how like the first time felt very desperate. It was very much like, oh, my gosh. And this time was a little bit more like they had a bit of a a better handle on the situation. They were anticipating Olatika. Yes, they were anticipating Olatika. They had an idea of what he could do. And it's the same. It's. You know, it's a rehash of a fight we just did, but we're tr- I'm trying to keep it fresh in different ways. So w- was that magical cannon always part of your headcanon? No, no, no. That was not part of my headcanon. It became a thing that I thought would be fun when they started to inquire if there was like a natural defense to, the, to Leroy. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, Leroy would have some sort of magical defense. They've already kind of clarified that the Mage's Villa was a point of you know, protection and Mm -hmm. like how it was supposed to protect the villagers. It just made sense to me that there would be some sort of protection at the mage's villa. And so I kind of came up with this like goofy magic cannon. And I liked this kind of idea that it burned up magic uh, slots or magic items to, in order to function still, because it was broken. Uh, Yeah. I thought the setup was really cool. Uh, It was a bummer when things didn't go quite according to plan. I think in retrospect, maybe I should have dropped the DC, the difficulty uh, Mm. class of that item to use it. Like it should, it, it wasn't particularly high. I don't remember exactly. It was either six. It was either fourteen or sixteen. It wasn't like a super high check, but it was you know not like a gimme. It was supposed to be pretty powerful, but Alan just rolled garbage the he whole time. Rolled pretty badly. I remember him like saying some of his rolls, and I was like, yikes, yikes! Consistently rolling really badly. Right, which is like not fun for him, I imagine. I'm and sure. It, and it was what was supposed to be kind of like a fun, like cool ass magic cannon firing at a at an undead snake in the sky. Like that should have been like some Pearl Harbor, like. But instead, it wasn't. Instead, it was just kind of a, a bit of a magic fizzle. 
Yes. Yes, it was. I mean, we got to see it work once, and that moment was very cool. I loved your description of this beautiful kind of like beam of magical energy firing across the jungle at Olatika and his bone form being blasted. Uh, But, you know, I also have to really give Christy some kudos because as it became clear that the original plan just wasn't going to work, she improvised really effectively. I think that was like the first time she really used the sling, right? I don't think she's ever used the sling. Anytime Christy has thrown on a rock, she has just picked it up and thrown it. Yeah. And I, I, I the sling was very much an item, I think when she was filling out her character sheet, she just decided to put on there. There wasn't, I think you know, she wanted to have like a ranged option. And I think the sling was like the only real viable one for her to even take. Yeah. And, and she's not particularly good at it, but she, you know, made it work. You know, that's the whole point is like even... That's what I like about parts like this, where it's like, like Christy isn't optimized to use her sling. She's not optimized to perform this kind of role in combat, but here she is doing it and she still succeeds. And like that's sometimes people get like too pigeonholed about like my character only does this one action really well. And like they kind of forget that like your character can do a plethora of different things, even if they're not the best at it, it should still be something that you could at least consider and try. And that's where you find, like, the good juice. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, even whenever the player characters end up in the Bronze Pyramid with the Dormer Cat, Suresh is there, and he can't really do much of anything, but he'll throw some rocks. He'll try. Yeah. (laughs) Good old Suresh. That was also a really interesting combat. I feel like... Was it? Because I felt like it was not. I mean, it was fun to see an enemy just get blasted full of arrows. Ugh, just get the shit kicked out of that poor Dwemer cat. Do you, are you disappointed with that particular combat? Uh, it's not that I'm disappointed with. I mean, I guess, yes, as a GM, I'm a little disappointed, but like not for any big reason. It's, it's the kind of GM disappointment that only other GMs feel, where like you had a really cool encounter kind of set up in the sense where it's like the Dwemer cat has like a bunch of neat abilities that are all tied to magic. I have a small list of like animals or not animals, but monsters and things like that, that I could maybe pull up at any moment for this campaign. And at the time I was like, oh, you know what? This is a good, this is a good opportunity to use the Dwemer cat, who is kind of a, an interesting uh, combatant with a lot of like interesting, like array of uh, unique abilities. However, the Dwemer cat is really suited to like, to fight against, a lot of magic users. It has a lot of like reactions to magic attacks. Right. And only Domius really uses magic. So it was, that part's kind of already wasted on the party, which is a bit of a bummer. And so I was kind of struggling with that because like he's got all these like neat reactions he can do based on like what kind of magic is happening near him. And then I was kind of getting caught up in that and I just forgot to use like his big signature ability is where he can basically teleport next to someone after they cast a spell, right? Oh. So he, like, fucks up magic users really bad. Like, he can, like, use a spell near the Dwemer Cat. Boom, that Dwemer Cat's near you, mauling you to death. Oh, and that did not happen. It did not happen. I completely forgot that it could do that <laughs> ability. And instead, it just, like, got a bunch of arrows and, like, a bunch of Chrissy bit it or something. And I was just like, well... It Crap. runs away, and this and like what should have been like at least kind of an interesting fight was just kind of very much like they knocked on the door, the cat's like go away, and like fuck you, and they beat the shit out of it and ran away, like which is fine, like that's still narratively fine, like the players had a good time. It's just like one of those things where it's like oh this would have been to me as a GM, it would have been more interesting maybe if this beat was allowed to happen. Mm. Otherwise, it was just basically a talking tiger. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, definitely. Yeah, I don't definitely. Know. I. It's like a, it's like the dumbest kind of GM complaint. <laughs> where it's like my monster didn't do the cool thing it's supposed to do because I forgot. Because I forgot. <laughs> Though to be fair, you are tracking a lot at yeah, any given yeah, yeah. moment. That is fair. Um. Well, I feel like in in this most recent episode, there was a lot of back and forth about a lot of different things and. It felt like the the jungle was maybe getting to our party a little bit. Oh yeah, they're getting that jungle madness. It's, it's kind of felt that way, yeah. Setting in. <laughs> it seemed like there were Which was my goal. Well oh yeah. Yeah, that was, that your was goal to the drive time. them all mad. Oh well you are well on your way, sir. <laughs> uh though I really do want to kind of dig in a little bit. Obviously, uh, a party's never going to always be on the same page, but it feel like there it felt like there was some real dissonance happening in this in this most recent episode Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i kind of wanted to get your gauge on it like coming at it from the the gm perspective are you supposed to be kind of like lady justice where you're blindfolded and kind of with the scales in your hands and not partaking or are there moments when you decide like oh okay enough's enough i'm gonna hop in and kind of referee this or i think um every gm is probably gonna have their own threshold to when they would step into like party conflict i think there's definitely gms who are very hands-off and very much like you guys settle it out. I am just Lady Justice. I am just going to be the arbiter on top of the hill. But I always think of a GM more as also like you're a storyteller, you're the referee, and you're kind of the, you know, you're the you're the teacher in a room full of 12-year-olds. Like, you have to kind of corral them back together. Like, even when we're not doing a recorded game, you know, there's big parts of our game sometimes where people will, you know, We'll have a conversation about another thing or people get into like a whole other topic. And it's like you, you as a GM, you have to be able to be like, all right, guys, let's let's kind of wrap this up. Let's move on. Let's kind of talk about what we're pull doing. Let's, back into let's the pull table. this all back in together and let's let's focus back on what we're doing. And that can be applied to this sort of thing as well. Um, especially when it's like a question of like whether or not like if are they in character the whole time? And I think for this kind of thing, they were in character the whole time. It felt that, like they just right, they, like, it felt like they just got kind of stuck in a rut. This is an issue I have with role playing in general, especially like this is a flaw and I don't know how the best way to correct it, it except for people to just be better about role playing but that's asking a lot is that sometimes it's, this happens a lot I've noticed in RPGs where it's like you want to do something I don't want to do something. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, "Oh, you know, if it was a real life situation, someone's going to win or lose and it's going to be kind of like amicable. We'll kind of be able to really talk it out. I get what you mean, because I think sometimes in role play games, it's easy to become a person who sees to become a character rather that sees things in absolutes because it's simpler to perform in that way. You know, look at the alignment chart. There's a reason why that there are neutral alignments, right? This is not a lawful good lawful evil and that's it right there are shades of gray and complexities and everything so i think that's something to definitely keep in mind when role playing is that you exist in a world where there are grays one of the failures i think of games like pathfinder and dungeons and dragons which are a little bit more mechanical and less about how players are really supposed to react to one another is that there isn't actually a mechanic there's no Aside from players or characters just, like, agreeing to deal with it somehow or, like, a GM stepping in, like, real inter-party conflict, there isn't a way around it. It's why you see, like, PvP happen and... PvP meaning player player versus versus player. player. Like, and that sort of thing happens because there's... They don't have another real way to resolve a problem, right? There's no, like, 
role to see like who is more convincing it's just eventually someone has to be like i have been convinced and like i think people are unwilling to lose fantasy arguments right like yeah. that i think that's a big part of it and in in this instance where it's kafka who is very anti summoning this protean and i kind of get his like reasoning behind it like he feels like things coming to the jungle are bad are, are, are bad and i and, like, I see the logic to that. I get where he's coming from. Like, one of the few moments that you actually insert yourself as a as a GM into that discussion is to pose the question, what gave you the, the notion or the belief that the hags want this thing or are even aware of it? Right. I think at one point, I forget, it was either Alan or Paul brought up that, oh, what if the ha- we have to get back to Poema because of this, like, star aligning, protean summoning thing. And, like, they make a guess, like, oh, maybe the hags know about that. And then from that point, they're just kind of going under the assumption the hags are going to use it. And that starts being, like, a real focal point for why they're doing the things they're doing. And to me, as a GM, sometimes I like that I'll let that sort of thing slide. That's fine. Like, you know. It's moving the story. It's moving the story. And, like, if they've made an assumption, even if it's not, even if it's an incorrect assumption, like, that's fine. But sometimes they, and what when I will step in as a GM is when I feel like they're making, like they're really digging into like an assumption that is an incorrect assumption. And sometimes as a GM, I'm always like, did I give them that incorrect assumption? Because mm-hmm. I want to be clear because the stakes and, and the world are already, it's hard to define a pretend world. So I want to make sure what I have defined is very clear. I don't want my players going around with murky information when I don't intend for it to be murky. Like, that's not fun. I want to keep my... The the stuff that I want murky is the stuff I want murky. Everything else I want to be clear because I want them to be making informed decisions. I want them to feel like they are making real choices. And really, going back to the origin of the protean at all comes back to Suresh and it almost being a reward for getting to know Suresh. Yes, very, very much so, where... You know, it's part of, again, like the NPC chart system that I'm using where, yeah, they, they I think the third check mark with Suresh gave them the ability to summon this protean. It's just written in my notes. Suresh uncovers secret to summoning. In three days, there will be a, a chance to summon a, a planner ally. And that's all I really have written. And then like everything else kind of got flushed out during that role play, you know, a couple episodes ago. And so it was only ever really intended to be a reward, like, you know, to summon, like, a low-level protean that could, like, be, like, a useful kind of ally. Yeah. And it's cool. I think it's cool that Paul, as Kafka, like, did something different with that. Like, I have no problem with, like, interpreting, you know, drawing your own conclusion, interpreting, like, something to be different. I think the problem comes from... Um, a, like your other party members want to do it because they don't have the same compo- like, com- like, you know, problem with doing it. Like, you know, they don't disagree. They don't agree with the argument you've made. So how is he going to convince them that he's right? So that's a big problem. And uh, there isn't really a way to resolve that other than like just through role playing and convincing. And the, And if no one wants to role play being convinced, then that's what it is. I do quibble, I think, as, like, just terms of good party, 
good party composure. Good party etiquette. Good, good etiquette. Good like table etiquette. I don't know if I like Paul's choice to then say like you're on your own. I feel like that's that that feels a little PVP. That it, it's in the same it's in the same realm, right? It's in the same realm of like, well, you've made a choice that I don't agree with. Therefore, I'm just going to abandon you, which I don't. Yeah, I didn't. Love? I didn't realize until he made the statement that he had like walked out and left the site entirely. And I think the problem also with this is that like, as a player, you want to play with the toys, right? Yeah. Paul in this moment isn't yes anding, right? Which is like okay. Yeah, there are times to. to there are times yeah. to say no. There are times to be firm in that kind of character choice. In that character choice. But I think it can be frustrating for your for your other players who want to play with the new toy, who want to do the next like what sounds like a fun beat. And if you're in, you know, like if the if the if your alternative to doing the fun beat is to not do the fun beat, it's it, that's a hard sell. I think that's fair. And also that I think that again, going back to what you were saying. There is no real defined method of arbitration. We have mechanics for almost every aspect of these tabletop games, except for you are people in a disagreement and you have to come to some sort of reconciliation and move forward. And the only person by default that can do that is the GM, which is probably hard to a degree. Right, because as a GM, like, who do you side with? How do you choose? Like, as a GM, I think, like, I want them to do the fun thing I set up for them. But I also want to respect the choice not to. Mm-hmm. Of course, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to really know where to really fall with that kind of uh, with that kind of conflict. It seemed like your tactic for that particular situation was to provide information and as much clarity as pos- as possible. And you didn't really, from my point of view, seem to take sides. Alan had some assumptions that you disagreed with. So did Christy. So did Paul. Everyone kind of was operating under a set of notions that you. I think had to correct to one degree or another. I felt like I had to be clear about what is happening. Like let's, you know, like, like let's remove some ambiguity. I want to make sure everyone understands what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Your characters understand what's happening, but maybe you as a player don't. And like, let's resolve that. Let's make, let's put those all in sync. Yeah. Let's everybody get kind of realigned a little bit. Moving forward into the, the post protean of it all. I just, can we talk about the perfect tomato? The perfect tomato? The perfect tomato? Sure. That what do you moment, want to talk about the that, perfect tomato? That moment was just so sweet. I had completely forgotten about that tomato. I'm shocked that Christy remembered it, though she has been very focused on this garden project. Yeah. Uh, which I did not think it would pay off at all. I'm sorry. I really didn't. I thought that she would just get cool. some nice fruit out of it. No. Um, very cool magic items. But the fact that she, like... I'm surprised you didn't give Christy an emerald because she went like straight to Ruth. Oh, I should have. You're right. Yeah. I didn't though. It's hard to remember to reward stuff like that. I don't you gotta. What you should do is just hold emeralds the entire game and you'll be wanting to get rid of them. Yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. Like they're, they're, yeah, I'm not the best about always rewarding things like that because it's hard as a GM. You're doing a million things as a GM and then to have to be like, so-and-so did a cool, like fun, good thing. I should reward that. Like, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's like, you just kind of remember when you do. And that's not the best solution. You want to be handing things like that out often. But I like the, I I do like the players can nominate each other for things like that. Because players are always looking for opportunities. 
And that is maybe the solution. Is to to allow players to kind of vie for... Yeah, and then, like, is the GM being like, yes or no? And, like, you know, 99% of the times you're probably going to say yes. That's true. That's true. Well, you owe Christy an emerald. And next time she sees you, I'm going to tell her... That I owe her an emerald? Yeah. That I owe her some plastic jewelry emeralds? Yeah. I think she'll be like, yeah, he does. (laughs) It was really wonderful to have our kind of our team reunited in a, in a palpable way to have the uh, Sumadra family brought back together. Uh, Ruth has her memory of dying. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you just made that decision as it happened. Uh, yeah. And it also because I wanted to play with some of the beats from that. And it's unlikely that they're going to get to like the later Ruth story scene check marks. Okay. Similarly to Anushka. To Anushka similar to Anushka, but I like Ruth's story more. That I had in mind. <laughs> so I wanted to like at least introduce more elements from it. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, now she can remember her being enchanted by the... The hags. The hags. So like maybe that un- that unlocked something in her. I'm fine with that. That works for me. Yeah. Or even the notion of like, I interpreted it as the tomato was so incredibly magical that it oh, removed the illusion of... Way better. You're right. The tomato <laughs> gave it to her. I like that even more. <laughs> and now it's canon. Canon. You can change your story at any time, ladies and gentlemen. At any time. You just gotta have a good pitch. Yeah, literally any time. <laughs> weeks later. Weeks and weeks later. <laughs> you just have someone wandering and be like, what about the tomato? <laughs> uh, well, on that note, let's let's go ahead and wrap it up. This feels like a good place to leave off. Uh, I'm excited for the end here. Like, they're about to go wake up on Gazan, free him from that uh, fucking tree. Gonna be pretty intense, I think. We'll see how this all shakes out because we're definitely looking at the end of this adventure. Oh my gosh, I'm nervous, but I'm excited. Well, Charuka! Charuka! Zoramnagam! The hags are still afoot. There's a lot to be wrapped up still. And we got plus one Protean. Yeah, the Protean's gonna be a huge help. The Protean is a plus one to the impending battles. Yeah. Can't wait. Uh, well, thank you again, Cal, so much for sitting down with me and delving into these past two episodes. I can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you all for listening. As always, if, you'd en- if you've enjoyed your time here at the Mythos Manual, please rate, like, subscribe to our podcast. It's so wonderful. Make sure you leave a review. If you have things you want us to talk to you about, leave that in your review and we'll talk about them. Uh, if you're wanting more content, you can check out our website at mythosmanual.com. Follow us on Twitter at Mythos Manual. It's all Mythos Manual, so you can find us pretty much anywhere under that name. Uh, again, I'm your host, Leslie Wisniewski. With me was Calder David. Thank you guys, and have a great next couple of weeks.